following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Because really, and, and one of the problems with our modern scientific approach to Scripture is that in, in our worrying about how many how deep the water was, we lose the significant message of what the, the story is really about. It doesn't matter if the f- water was 20 feet above this mountain or that mountain or whatever. It doesn't matter how deep the water was. Okay, What matters is the message of the story. And the message is that God wiped out everything on living thing on the face of the earth. Okay, How much water it took to do that, I don't know. But the point is, the flood is about the absolute destruction and annihilation of every living thing on the planet. And however much water there was, there was enough. There was enough to do the job. All right, How did it look like? I don't know. Uh, for me personally, one of the more attractive theories, although it's just, a, again, a wild guess, is that a meteor, meteorite from space... Uh, you know, hit the ocean at 28,000 miles per hour. Now, I just put this in perspective. We know, because those of us who have been around Thailand for a while, know what just a minor earthquake, a mere 7 point something on the Richter scale, what kind of a wave it can set off, right? Kill 250,000 people. Imagine a rock 10 miles across hitting there at the 25,000 miles an hour somewhere in the ocean. It would destroy everything on the earth, Okay. Uh, there's, there's a lot of ways God could wipe out every living thing on the earth. Right? And this is the story about how he did it. Now, we're not going to get lost in all the scientific details, but we do want to look carefully at the message. What, what is the point of all this? Why did God do this? And what does it tell us about ourselves and our life and about God's character? Well, let's look at the story. We're not actually going to read through the whole thing, two full chapters. But what I want to do is break down for you and kind of show you as a whole the structure of the Genesis story. And, um, you know, we could also talk about the uh, source critical theory, which we won't, that says, you know, Genesis and the Pentateuch was put together by many different sources, but it wasn't actually written by Moses. It was, it was cut and pasted because that's how we write papers, right? <laughs> we go on the Internet and cut and paste. Well, there's a theory that says the whole Old Testament was written by cut and paste technology. Right? Now, most of that is being debunked. And uh, accounts of the flood are one of the favorite ones that they like to do this with. But when you look at the structure and symmetry of the Genesis account, you see that it was written with a very clear single message. Okay? It wasn't just random pieces patched together. That the author constructed carefully a story that fit together extremely well. And if we can go to the first slide, I'll show you that structure. It is a very wonderfully crafted story very well put together, and very clearly designed. And the symmetry of the story follows a chiasmus or a palistrophe, if you want to use the fancy words. And what that simply means is that the beginning and end match. The second part and the second to last part are mirrored, and so on down. And I kind of showed that as uh, the outline of these two chapters. First of all, um, God commands Noah to enter the ark in, in chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, interestingly, the story ends at the end of chapter 8 with God commanding Noah to leave the ark. Okay, so it begins and it ends with God's spoken command and Noah's following God's directions. The second part, uh, the flood begins. 
and uh, the waters come and the uh, earth breaks forth the depths and the waters fill the earth. Uh, the corresponding part at the end of the story is that the earth dries out and the water recedes and the land re-emerges and dries out and becomes once again habitable. Uh, the third phase, uh, the waters, it says, prevail upon the earth. Uh, the waters stay and remain on the earth for 150 days. The, the, the matching part at the end of the story in chapter 8 is that the waters recede for 150 days. Uh, in the very center of the story is uh, verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1, God remembers Noah. Okay, God remembers Noah as the center of the story. Another way to break this down, you can go to the next slide, another way to look at this is uh, quite interesting, the numbers. And there are a number of things that parallel. We could go through all these, but not necessary. But let me just show you how the numbers parallel in each of these and mirror each other. Uh, first section, there's a seven-day warning that the flood will begin. God says, in seven days, I'm going to send the flood. Uh, then it says again that, that there were seven days of waiting, and then God did send the flood. Um, then there were 40 days of rain, followed by 150 days of the water prevailing on the earth. Uh, then it mirrors itself back, 150 days of the water receding, 40 days of, of uh, Noah waiting before he opens the, the roof of the ark, the covering, uh, and then two seven-day waiting periods. Now, the point of all that, you might go, wow, that was life-changing. <laughs> wow. Uh, maybe not life-changing, but I want you to see that there, the author didn't just randomly tell the story, Okay. It is a very, very carefully crafted story. We can go on and show much more detail of how there's phrases and things mirrored. The point is that the author was constructing a story from beginning to end that was tight, knit, and put together. So let's just summarize quickly what the story is. We know the story, but let me just point out a couple highlights as we kind of blaze through the story. Uh, first of all, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, God declares what he's going to do. And he gives very specific instructions to Noah. He says, you know, go into the ark, you and your family, your children and their wives, and take with you animals, uh, two of every kind of unclean and seven pairs of clean. It's interesting that uh, we don't know what life was like during the days of Noah. Uh, there's no real record, and the Bible doesn't give any kind of detail about uh, a lot of information about what was going on during the days of Noah. We don't know how technologically advanced they were. You know, these people lived seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years. That's a lot of time to think and to create and to advance. Uh, you know, I tend to think of Noah as, you know, hewing the trees out with a, with a stone axe because he's kind of a caveman kind of figure. But actually, he was probably quite advanced. We don't know how advanced, but maybe, you know, he had a sawmill. I don't know. Uh, we don't know what was going on, and the Bible doesn't say but it's interesting that he knew the difference between unclean and unclean animals. Uh, later, he offers sacrifices. Uh, he knows clearly a lot about what God expects of him. And so it's very clear that somehow or other, we don't know how God had written it down or revealed it through prophets, but that during Noah's day, somebody knew, Noah knew, what was right and wrong knew about sacrifice, knew what animals were appropriate to sacrifice. And probably here the context of clean and unclean animals is not so much in terms of diet, because uh, at the garden, God really hadn't actually given them permission to eat animals. Uh, that comes after the flood. So most likely the context here is that 
They were clean because they were appropriate for sacrifice. And Noah knew all this information, so he had a clear theology, if you will. Uh, Whatever he was in terms of technology, we know that Noah had a clear theology. He knew who God was, and he knew what God expected. Uh, So we know that much from from this account. And, and, And so God clearly instructs Noah, speaks to Noah, clearly instructs him to enter the ark. He says, seven days, the flood's coming. You need to get everybody on board, all the animals, load them up. Okay. Then, uh, in, in chapter 7, verse 5, it says, So Noah did everything the Lord commanded him. Uh, Noah is not a very well-developed character. We really don't know anything about Noah, especially up through chapter 8. Now, in chapter 9, we find out that he likes to drink. Okay, He was European, maybe. I don't know. Uh, sorry, sorry, I couldn't resist. Uh, we don't know. We, other than that, we really don't know anything about Noah except for one thing. He did everything God commanded. Okay, repeatedly, the one thing that it says about Noah is that God spoke, and Adam did everything God commanded. Other than that, up through chapter seven and eight, Noah does not speak a single word. He, we don't know what his opinion is. We don't know what his worries are. We have no clue what he did for one year in the ark. You know, we don't know if he liked playing cards. Or if he invented, maybe he's the guy that invented tic-tac-toe. I mean, he had a lot of time on his hands. We don't know anything about it. We don't know what he did. Except this. Noah did everything God commanded him. Noah was a man of obedience. And then it goes on in, in verses 6 through 10, and, and it explains what Noah did and how he obeyed God. That he uh, loaded up the ark. He got the animals on board. He loaded up his family and he did everything that God commanded in preparation for the flood. Then in, in verses 11 through 16, it tells what God did. Uh, it says that, uh, that God kept his promise, that the rain came, that the fountains of the deep were burst open, and whatever water there was and whatever it came from, it came with full force. And God sent the water. It wasn't just a freak of nature, uh, you know, and, and not that God didn't use natural means, But God was the one behind it. God sent the rain, and it came from him. Uh, It makes it clear that God was ultimately the one that brought the animals to the boat. Uh, They came as God directed. Noah didn't have to go out and find them or trap them or hunt them down. But God is the one who sovereignly brought them to the ark. Uh, It says that God shut the door. Uh, Whatever Noah did in obedience to preserve his life, was helpful, but in the end, it was God who did the work. It was God's hand that saved and protected Noah. It was God who was working and doing. And you see that in this great picture when everything's loaded up and everybody's on board, and God shuts the door, and God seals them in. And it's this great picture of God's hand on the ark, preserving and protecting it. God is the one who does it. And then in 17 through 24, uh, the... The, the character, the, if, you, if you could view this as a stage play, you know, first it's Noah on the stage, then Noah leaves and God comes on the stage, then God goes off the stage, and what's on the stage is the water. Water takes front and center stage, and it's about the water prevailing over the earth. And uh, the, the, the language here is, is uh, it says several times prevailing, or some translations use the word to triumph. Uh, it's, it's a word that has military connotations. 
It's a word that you would use if you triumph over your enemies. If you prevail in, in battle and overcome your enemy. That's the word that's used there. And the idea is that the water prevails over the earth. In fact, let me read because it's, it's so powerful. Let me read just a little bit. It says, For forty days the floodwaters grew deeper, prevailing, covering the ground, lifting the boat higher. As the waters rose higher, the boat floated safely on the surface. Finally, the water covered. And again, that word covered is literally prevailed. The water prevailed even against the high mountains. Uh, it rose above the peaks. It prevailed above the peaks. Okay, three different times it uses that word. Uh, this translation uses the word covered, but, but that's not literally the word. It's the word prevail. Why does the water prevail? What is it conquering over? Well, the water was sent as an agent of God to do a job. And what was the job? To destroy every living thing. And what is emphasized in this last section of chapter 7 is that the water was effective in accomplishing its purpose. And finally, the chapter ends with these very stark, grave words. Um, All the living things on the earth died. Every living thing. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, small animals that scurry along the ground, and all the people. I love it. The... um, Animals and all of creation gets eight words. People get two. <laughs> okay? Everything is wiped out. All the living things on the earth died. Everything that breathed on, and lived on dry land died. God wiped out everything on the earth. Okay? All were destroyed. Everything was lost. Okay? It wants to make sure you get the point. Okay? It doesn't just say it once. He says it three times to make sure you get the point. Everything was destroyed. God carried out complete judgment on everything that had breath. Everything that had breath. In fact, uh, a lot of what is written in Genesis 7-8 mirrors and reflects what was written in Genesis chapter 1. It's very much an undoing of what God did in Genesis chapter 1. And uh, remember in Genesis chapter 1 it says that God breathed the breath of life and He gave animals and everything the breath of life. Well, now it says that that breath of life is snuffed out and nothing left is remaining except Noah and those on on board the ark. So for that reason, the waters prevail. The waters triumph. Uh, Just a word about the the language here that may help some of you sort out the science. We're going to talk a lot about the science, but let me just give you the Hebrew. Uh, there are some words here that are difficult to translate. Um, and they've created problems. Here, here are some of them. Um, nowhere does it actually use the words that the earth was submerged completely underwater. Okay, that language isn't in the, in the original Hebrew. It uses this word three times that the waters triumphed or prevailed over the earth, over the surface of the earth. Uh, but it's an assumption that means everything was completely all at once for 150 days submerged. All right? um, it, it does say that the waters covered the mountains. And it does use the word covered there. But the word covered can have lots of meanings. Uh, and it's used other places in the Old Testament with the meaning of to cover over something, like to cover yourself with a coat. Okay? It doesn't mean you submerge yourself in a coat. It just means that you're blanketed with. right? And that word is used with that meaning uh, other places, even in the context of water, that it, it washes over something. 
Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean or imply that it's submerged. Uh, could a wave big enough to cover Mount Ararat, would it, how would you describe that it covered the mountains? Okay, a wave coming in and going over all the mountains, how would you describe that? Well, you would say it covered the mountains. Does it mean it stayed on the mountains permanently? Well, not necessarily. Uh, it says that, and people say, yeah, but it says it rose to a height of 22 feet over the mountains, right? Well, actually, it doesn't say that either. The Hebrew literally says this. Uh, the water uh, from above, here's, here's literally how it would be. From above rose the waters, and the mountains were covered. Okay, two separate phrases. From above rose the waters to a height of 22 feet. From above what? Well, of course, that's the big debate and the big question. We don't know. Does it mean that it permanently stood above the mountains at 22 feet? Does it mean it permanently stood above the plain at 22 feet? I don't know. It doesn't matter. The point is, there was a lot of water, okay, and nobody survived it. That's the point, okay? There's room in the language of the Hebrew for it to mean and paint a lot of different pictures. That's what I want you to see. Uh, whatever it was, it was sufficient to destroy every living thing on the earth except what was with Noah in the ark. Um, but that's the first half of the story. It's mirrored in chapter 8, center verse 8-1. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and livestock with him in the boat. And he sent a wind to blow across the earth and the floodwaters began to recede. Again, pictures creation. Remember early on in creation, it says the earth was formless and void. And what? The Ruach, the spirit, the Ruach of God, hovered over the face of the deep, right? Same, word, same language is used here. It says that uh, the earth is covered with water. And the Ruach, of, the Ruach, same word, spirit, or can be wind, Ruach, uh, blew across the, the ocean. So now God begins the process of recreating, remaking what he's just destroyed. And, and at, at that, the waters begin to recede. And so for 150 days, the water is receding. At, at, at the end of 150 days, the ark chink, lands on something, Mount Ararat, which, by the way, it says the mountains of Ararat. Uh, we don't know where it landed. If it was on the 17,000-foot Mount Ararat, of course, there are people who have claimed they've seen it on the top of Mount Ararat. Uh, you can believe what you want. Um, somewhere in the mountains, somewhere, it landed. Okay. Um, another period of waiting goes by 40 days. After 40 days, the water is receding and Noah opens the roof. Uh, I always picture the, the, the ark with a wooden roof, right, because that's what houses have. It's interesting, though, the word covering here is the same language that's used for the covering of the tabernacle of leather animal skins. Uh, it's very possible that the ark was covered with skins. And in fact, a lot of the language, both of the garden and of the ark, reflect language of the temple. In fact, if you take the measurements of the ark, it's very similar to the measurements of the temple. Uh, so it may have been covered with leather or skins or hides, we don't know. Uh, this part of the story really slows down. The action in the first half of the flood coming, the waters come with force and with speed, and wham, instantly the earth is covered and flooded. The receding takes a lot longer. And there's some drama, or maybe lack of drama, 
in that part of the story. And, you know, it's this picture of Noah in the boat, okay? The judgment's come. The flood has come. He survived it. The ark has now landed on a mountain somewhere. And they are ready to get off. They've been on the boat for a very long time, six months, right? They are ready to get on, start planting things, you know. They're watching the food stores go down. Uh, You know, he's losing his tan. Uh, He's ready to get on with life. And there's 150 days. He waits that up. Then there's 40 more days. Then there's a week. Then there's another week, right? Now put yourself on the boat with Noah and his family. What are they doing? I mean, there's no TV. There's no computer. There's no email. There's no cell phones. There's nothing but stinky animals, right, who have been on this boat for a very long time. It's a picture of very patient waiting. Now, not not completely patient because Noah starts thinking about, okay, how can I figure out what's going on outside, you know? What, what is going on out there? And he wants to know. His curiosity is going every day. He's wondering how many more, how much longer, how much longer is this going to go? And I know I, and I've never been pregnant, so I don't really know. But I've experienced it with at least one person, this process of waiting for nine months to go by. And it's a long time. And those last couple of weeks really are torture. And I can just picture Noah going, how much longer? Days, weeks? Can you give me some clue, God? It's interesting, God speaks to Noah when he enters, he speaks to Noah when he leaves, but for the solid year in between, 365 days in between, God does not speak. And nothing goes on. And Noah is waiting and waiting and waiting. And so uh, Noah gets the brilliant idea, I'll throw some stuff out and see what comes back. And he starts thinking, you know, the hippo, I'll never get it over the side of the boat. Uh, smaller, a rat, no, no, a bird, yeah, a bird, right? And he sends out a raven, which was not real brilliant because ravens live at high altitude and like peaks and eat dead things. Okay, the raven's gone. So, oh, bad idea. <laughs> Drats. Okay, what else, what else? Oh, a dove. A dove lives down in the valley and they live, they like trees and stuff. They're not going to take off and just because they eat vegetables and seeds and stuff. I'll send a dove. So he sends a dove, comes right back. Not a good sign. Wait seven days, sends another dove, sends the dove out again, comes back, but this time it's got a leaf in its mouth. Promising. There's hope. Finally, he sends out the dove the third time, it never comes back. Good sign. Good sign. The land is drying out. So now uh, Noah not only lifts back the cover, but he opens up the ark and he looks out and he sees oh, all around him dry land, right? So he opens the door and charges out of the boat, right? Interestingly, no. The, the, the story ends with chapter, uh, verses 15 and through 19. Noah waits until what? He waits until God speaks. Amazing. Okay, now, I don't know. I mean, this is patience. Okay, this is patience. Okay, he has been waiting for one full year. He knows that it's dried out. He knows that, you know, it's over. And yet he still waits until God speaks. Okay? And then he goes off the boat and uh, God says, go out, refill the earth, multiply, fill it. And now at last they can live life again. Well, what are the lessons of this story? Um, let me just give two. Um, there's probably a lot of lessons. But let me just speak of two. One is about the righteous character of Noah the other is about the righteous character of God. 
what was the righteous character of Noah? Uh, in chapter 6, and Nate brought this out last week, uh, as well as the beginning of chapter 7, it makes it very clear that Noah was righteous. Uh, what does it mean to be righteous? Well, simply it means you do the right thing. Right? Uh, it says, verse 1, he says, Go into the boat, go into the ark with your family. For among all the people of the earth, I can see that you alone are righteous. Um, what does it mean to be righteous? Does it mean that Noah never sinned? Well, probably not. In fact, we know later with the whole getting drunk thing, that's borderline sin. I mean, you know, drinking is one thing, getting drunk. The Bible's pretty clear you're not supposed to do that. He was not a perfect guy. Uh, what did it mean for him to be righteous? Did it mean that he uh, kept the list of rules perfectly? Well, maybe. And certainly he knew the rules. He knew God's code. And certainly he was known as one who followed it well. But is that, is that really what righteousness is? Here's the question. And, and here's, here's the other. There's two questions in this. Is just keeping the law true righteousness? And if it is, is that enough to merit God's salvation? This is an interesting theological question. It says that God saw Noah's righteousness and he saved him because he was righteous. Well, if you're in any other religion besides Christianity, that makes perfect sense because every religion is just about that, right? It's about keeping all the laws and doing all the right things so that the gods have to be nice to you, right? That's, that's, that's Buddhism. You know, the monks try to do the right thing, live very moral lives, so that in the end, they will merit a better life. Ultimately, merit nirvana. Right? Islam is the same thing. How many imams are trying to do the right thing, trying to keep the law, trying to always keep perfectly the law so that Allah will be nice to them. Right? That's every religion. Is that what... The Bible teaches here in the story of Noah, Noah that you know Noah kept the rules and therefore he was merited God's saving grace, God's saving protection. It wouldn't even be grace then. It would be God's, what, what was due to him. Is that what it says? Is that what it means? Well, the Bible makes it clear that that's not how Noah was saved. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear that every human being is sinful, is under the curse of sin from Adam and Eve, and is destined to death and judgment. That any saving that's done is a matter of God's grace. So what does it mean when it says that Noah was righteous and therefore God saved him? Well, let me put it into this context. Uh, there are three things about Noah that made him righteous. First of all, it repeatedly makes it clear that Noah heard God speak, right? In chapter 6, it says it repeatedly. It says that Noah walked with God. In chapter 7, it says it twice. Uh, in chapter 8, it says it. God, uh, Noah knew how to hear the voice of God. I believe that true righteousness always begins here. Okay? Righteousness is not simply keeping a moral code. Okay? A Buddhist monk who perfectly keeps the moral code is not a righteous person because he never hears the voice of God. Okay? Righteousness begins not with keeping rules, but with hearing the voice of God. All right? If you don't know how to hear the voice of God, you cannot be righteous. 
And it makes it very clear in this story and in this context that the righteousness of Noah was very much connected to him hearing everything God told him to do. Now, you know, we look at stories like this and you see these stories of Noah and and, uh, Abraham and these people that God talked to. And we think this is not normal. We think that Noah was an exceptional being and God saved him because he was exceptional. I would say the opposite is true. I would say God saved Noah because he was normal. The exception was all the people who didn't hear the voice of God and should have. See, God was speaking. God was speaking to people in Noah's age just like He's speaking to people today. The problem wasn't that Noah was special because he heard God. It was that all the other people were ignoring the voice of God. They weren't listening. They were ignoring and shunning the voice of God. See, it's normal for God to speak and for people to hear. And so it ought to be a part of our normal, everyday experience with God that He speaks to us. Now, does that mean that we hear voices? Tim. <laughs> you know, not necessarily. In fact, we don't know how... It doesn't say how Noah heard God. Did he hear an audible voice or did God just speak to him in his heart? Did God just put it into his heart? Did he have a vision? We don't know. Uh, we don't know. But somehow... Noah was able to distinguish the voice of God and clearly hear what was from Him. That is the first thing of righteousness. And it's true for any of us. If we want to be righteous, we must hear God's voice. Secondly, he didn't just hear God's voice, but he did everything God said. Okay? He didn't just say, oh God, that's nice. There's going to be a flood. I'll buy, I'll buy flood insurance. Thanks for the warning. Right? No, he, 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 he heard God's voice and then he followed exactly everything that God said. You see, righteousness isn't keeping rules. It is obedience. And there's a huge difference. There's a huge difference. It is very possible for us to go through the motions of keeping a set of rules. And here's how it works. When it comes to keeping rules, we always pick rules that we know we can keep, right? We don't keep rules that are too hard for us. Uh, we some find some way to like, erase those, right? It's easy to do that, right? Go to church read my Bible for 10 minutes every day, pray for five minutes, don't cuss, don't chew tobacco, because I don't like it anyway, Uh, blah, 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 right? It's a totally different thing to hear God's voice and walk in obedience. For God to prompt in your heart to pray for somebody or to go somewhere, to share Christ with somebody, or to leave your home country and move to a foreign country where nobody speaks English, right? Okay, much more difficult. That's the second phase of righteousness. We hear God's voice, we obey. Okay, we do all that God commands. Thirdly, uh, all that is ultimately the result or the outpouring of faith. Notice what Hebrews 11 says about Noah. Uh, it says in Hebrews 11:7, it was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God, who warned him about the things that had never happened before. By this, Noah condemned the rest of the world, and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. See that? Why was Noah considered righteous? For the same reason Abraham was considered righteous, for the same reason every person on the earth that God views as righteous is viewed as righteous. It is because they have faith in God. The beginning of all righteousness is always the conviction that God is for real and He keeps His word. You see, when God spoke to Noah and said, I'm going to wipe out every living thing on the face of the earth with a flood, 
And your only hope is to build a really big boat. No, I didn't go, well, that's really cool. I believe in floods. And go about his life and his merry way and ignore the commands. No, he believed it. He believed the day was soon coming when there was going to be a flood. And he acted with conviction upon that belief. You see, there's a lot of people who are righteous in that they do the right things. They follow the law and the code. But they never hear God's voice. Okay, the Buddhist monk never hears God's voice. Okay, if he does, he ignores it. He keeps the code. Uh, he never walks in true obedience. And he has no faith or belief in the power of God. He's not a righteous person. On the other hand, there are people who claim faith. And by that, they mean that they believe certain things to be true. Okay? They, they've heard stories and they've heard theology and they accept it as truth but they never act upon it. That person is also not a righteous person. Okay? And they will not find salvation. You cannot find salvation just by mental assent to a doctrinal statement. Okay? True faith means that you have the conviction that God is for real and He will do everything He's promised. He will judge sin and He will bless the righteous. He will bring disaster on those who rebel against Him. And He will send grace on those who follow Him. We believe that with all our heart. So much so that we act upon it. And we walk in obedience to that voice. That's righteousness. And that is why Noah built the ark. And it was through that faith that it was counted to him as righteousness. So you see, Noah was not saved because he was a good person. Uh, Noah was saved because he believed and trusted God. Okay, lastly, uh, and, and that should be you know that should be true of us. You want to be a righteous person? It begins with faith, faith that leads to hearing God's voice and walking in obedience. Lastly, the righteous character of God. Um, it was right for God to judge sin, and it is right for God to judge sin. Apart from Christ, every living thing, every, every human being is under God's wrath and un, under God's judgment. And it was appropriate and right for him to do this. Because where there is sin, this is how it works. And we all want to sin because we like sin and it's actually uh, enticing and there is some benefit to uh, us in it. Even though in the end the benefit doesn't work out so well, Right? But we're selfish, and we want to live for ourselves, and uh, we want to do things for ourselves. But what is the cost of sin? Well, we know the wages of sin is death to us. But in a more practical sense, who pays for our sin? Well, sometimes I pay for it, but more often, other people pay for it, right? If I steal and I don't get caught, it doesn't cost me anything, but the guy I stole from, it costs him, right? Uh, if I'm driving drunk and I run over somebody, okay, it doesn't cost me anything, but it costs that guy his life. See, sin always costs a price to the victims of sin. Uh, and, and God in His grace did not let the sin of the evil of the days of Noah go on forever. It was His grace that put a stop to it. In the same way, God will judge sin. Uh, that is not His final judgment. He will judge again. And He will bring again His wrath upon the world. Uh, 
But also, it was right that God remembered Noah. And, you know, I, went to the, I, I wanted to show you the structure of the story because in Hebrew stories that are written this way, the main point is always what's at the center. Okay? Like we, we usually put the, the big bang at the end, right? Uh, but in Hebrew literature, they put the main point, the most significant thing, right in the center. What was in the center? God remembered Noah. Okay, God remembered Noah. The story is really far more about God than Noah. It is about both the righteous judgment of God, but it's also about the rightness of God to save people he loves. He remembered Noah. Now, I don't know what Noah's experience of this was, shut up in the ark for a year where God does not speak. Uh, you know, and the whole world, I mean, picture this. You're in this boat, and literally the world is being destroyed around you. Okay, that had to make some noise. You know? That had to rock the boat a little, if not a lot. I mean, it may have at times stood that boat straight up and down. Okay? And maybe there were times when Noah was not so sure that it wasn't the end of his life. Right? And then finally after the, the rain subsides, and, and then there's a really long time of just nothing. They're just drifting at sea. And I'm sure more than once Noah thought, man, is God out there? Does God remember me? Right? You know, what's going to happen? Uh, but the scripture makes it very clear God remembered. And it doesn't mean, you know, like we forget things and then we remember. You know, it wasn't like God was off busy somewhere and goes, you know, there's something, something I'm supposed to remember. What is it? Oh, yeah, that boat. Where's that boat? Right? I don't think that's the picture. You know, the picture is when God remembers, it is an expression of his saving protection. God never forgot Noah. He never forgot the people that were destroyed. He remembered them as well. But his remembering is a, is a picture of his care, his watch care. Okay, he was watching over that boat. He was watching over Noah and his family. And he was actively working to save Noah. And the cool thing in this story is, yeah, there is judgment and God, just, God will judge sin. But the cool thing is that for the righteous man who knows what it is to walk by faith, God has promised he will remember us. And I don't know where you are in your life and what you're dealing with, but maybe it feels to you like the world is coming to an end, or at least your world. Uh, maybe it feels sometimes like you are just at, adrift at sea, and you haven't heard God's voice for maybe a very long time. And you wonder, is God aware? Does God know about me? In this whole world of chaos around me, does God pay attention? And the great truth of this story is that, yes, God remembers. Absolutely. Those who call to him in faith and who walk in obedience and uh, live a righteous life, live a life of faith. God remembers. Um, this past week, I don't know why, but God definitely spoke to me uh, from Scripture. And actually, it wasn't a Scripture I even read. He just put it on my mind. And I, I just kept thinking of this passage, um, this verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Let me just close reading this. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. 
It says this. Uh, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. And that's the picture of uh, the flood. You know, the old life is wiped away. And as they enter out of the boat, they enter into a new life that God has given them through His saving work. All this is a gift from God who brought us back to Himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to Him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And He gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making His appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Uh, the last verse is the one that God kept putting on. Only I, It was the old King James Version, which said, He made him who knew no sin to become sin. He made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, had no personal experience of sin, to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, the amazing thing when you think about the flood is that God chose, instead of sending another flood, He chose the second time to execute judgment for sin by turning His own Son into sin. It's amazing. That, that God, instead of judging us, judged His own Son. And the devastating wrath of God that we see in the flood is a picture of the kind of judgment God poured out on His own Son. Devastating, destroying death. So that we could be, we could become the righteousness of God. And it's, it is faith. And you know, we know, yeah, you're saved by faith, but you know, we, we make so little of what it is to live by faith. Okay? It is, the Christian life is a life of faith. Noah discovered it. And he's an example to us to walk in his salvation through faith. Let's pray. Father, I... I just pray that your spirit would impress upon our minds the reality of the story. Lord, you hate sin. And you and your righteousness must judge sin severely. And at the same time, you look out across the world to find the righteous person who is living by faith, who's trusting in you, Lord, we know that this is not a story about how Noah was saved by his good works and his own effort. It was very much by your grace and by your hand that he was saved. But you saved him because he lived a life of faith and obedience, of true righteousness. And Lord, we thank you that it is a picture of the salvation that we have through Christ. 
that by entering in through the waters of baptism, as Peter says, we pass through the judgment that was poured out upon Christ. As He was made sin, He was made our sin. He was made my sin. So that I, in turn, could be made the very righteousness of God. So that I could float high above the judgment of God upon the waves of Your mercy and grace. Lord, thank You so much for that gift. And Lord, for anyone here this morning who's just struggling, who's feeling overwhelmed, Lord, I pray that You would remind them that You remember Your children, that You always are looking out for Your children, and You are always protecting us, regardless of how it may feel. Your presence is always with us. We just thank you for that, Father, and help us to walk in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.